0: If you have spent any time recently at the light at the bottom of Quail Street as it goes into 72nd, coming out of our neighborhood, you'll know that that is a miserable experience. (laughs) If you're turning left at the wrong time of a day, you can just sit there and wait and wait and wait, so much so that a person might be tempted to turn left on a red light when there's... (laughs) And it doesn't help a lot. (laughs) Gary knows. He lives there. Now, there is also a stop sign that's just at the bottom of the first little hill out of our neighborhood on the way down to that miserable light that one could easily roll through, of course, slowly. But it's safe because you can see in both directions. Now, as I've come to think about it, I think that actually has happened before, that someone has rolled through that sign in my family. Someone in my family has occasionally turned left on red. So... The thing is, there has been a police officer present and has witnessed those a couple of times. And there has been nothing more than a warning. So, it must be okay to do it, right? (laughs) The police officer gave his blessing. With just a warning. Dumb laws. <clears throat> there are still a number of dumb laws on the books in Colorado. Some of these perhaps you know and, and abide by closely. Did you know that it's illegal to ride a horse while under the influence Tags may be ripped off of pillows and mattresses. That's good to know. Throwing missiles at cars is illegal. Persons may not urinate in public. Good law. Establishments which sell alcohol must have enough lighting to read the text inside of them. That The text ins, they don't even go there. It is illegal to permit one's llama to graze on city property. Boulders may not be rolled on city property. Couches may not be placed on outside porches. It is unlawful to lend your vacuum cleaner to your next door neighbor. Just saying, it's in the laws. And... You'll be glad to know this. It is permissible to wear a holstered six-gun within city limits except on Sunday, Election Day, or holidays. A <laughs> <laughs> couple of years ago, ABC News ran the story about a group of motorcyclists who gathered in New York over the 4th of July weekend. They were riding in pro- in, to, to protest the New York state law that requires mandatory helmets, For motorcycle riders. One of those riding in the protest spun out of control, flew headfirst over the handlebars, struck the pavement, skull was fractured, and he was pronounced dead at the hospital. The police and the doctor treating the man said afterwards that if he'd been wearing a helmet, he probably would have survived the accident. The group organizing the protest ride said that while they encourage the voluntary use of motorcycle helmets, they oppose mandatory helmet laws. So whatever you might think about laws concerning motorcycle helmets, the irony is is that the man died protesting a law that if he had obeyed it, would have probably saved his life. Laws and individual rights make for lively discussions, don't they? We're going to spend the next couple of months of Sunday mornings, talking about laws. Ten of them, actually. You've probably heard of them. They comprise what is known in theological circles as the Decalogue. It's a word that is made up of two Greek words, deca meaning ten, logos meaning word. The ten words, you have probably know them as the Ten Commandments. They are indeed laws. They're not suggestions. They're not just good ideas, though they are very good ideas. They are, in fact, laws. Have you heard of the Ten Commandments? Oh, good. I am relieved. They are in the Bible. I figured you probably had heard of them at some point. But you might find this interesting, that about five years ago, when Promenade Pictures released the new animated movie, some of you may have seen it, Called the Ten Commandments, in anticipation of the release of the movie, Kelton Research conducted a poll of 1,000 people to determine basic knowledge of the Ten Commandments. 80% of those polled knew that a Big Mac had two all-beef patties, and 62% knew that it had pickles. But less than 50% could remember even seven of the Ten Commandments. Now, a further polling via the Man on the Street interviews also bore some grave news. Testing knowledge of the Ten Commandments versus popular culture knowledge. Most people polled could remember the names of all four of the Beatles rock group, but many could not even remember one commandment. So, this morning we're going to have a quiz. You're going to turn to your... No, I'm just teasing. But you were worried, weren't you? Yes, yes you were. Oh my goodness. But we are going to read the Ten Commandments together. Our text is from Exodus chapter 20 this morning. It's our primary text for these next, couple of, next uh, couple of months together as we explore these Ten Commandments. And I'll tell you more about that in just a minute. Let's stand together. Let's read. We've got a leader and we've got two congregations this morning. So let's make the folks over here on the north side congregation one you folks over here, South Side, you be Congregation two, and I'll lead. Here we go. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." Deal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you. So that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. My brothers and sisters, these are ancient ancient words, and yet they are indeed the words of the Lord. Amen. Be seated. Now, there just wasn't a whole lot of enthusiasm that was just bounding out of you as you read those. Kind of a la-di-da, the Ten Commandments, and you're probably wondering where did the idea for this sermon series come from? I would not be blaming you if that's in fact what you're wondering. All I can say is that it's been something that I have been thinking about for several years. Time just never has seemed to be right. Sometimes, honestly, choosing a sermon series is a bit like a prayerful coin flip. There are times, I always pray, I always seek the Lord, Father, where are we going? Where Where do you want us to go in your word? What do you want your people, all of us together to learn and wrestle with? How do you want us to grow? And there are times when it is just clear, it is clear, this is where I want you to go. And there are other times when I feel as if the Lord allows me to just sort of pray and flip the coin and uh, freedom to choose, and this is... This is one of those times, but as i 've been preparing for the series i 'm really i'm looking forward to this i 've never done a series on the Ten Commandments. Have you ever heard a series on the Ten Commandments? Some yeah, okay yeah it, you know it, it's it 's a significant text significant text um, and and I think that there are some some truths some some principles, some ideas that are embedded in these ancient words that by God's grace and, the, and the, the energy of His Spirit, they will come, I think, to life, perhaps in ways that they have not before uh, in, in your life, certainly in my life as well. Uh, Eugene Peterson has written a, a book. It's an older book. He, he wrote it for pastors. He says that when we read the Scripture, we must read in order to listen. We must read in order to listen. They are the words of God. And Peterson says before they were ever written down, they were spoken. An oral tradition in the life of Israel for centuries is what preserved the stories and passed things along, remembering that the word of the Lord is a spoken living word. And so, his encouragement, Peter's encouragement for pastors, and, and I would encourage all of us in this, is that we would, be, we would be students of the text. That we would understand, strive to understand the context and the times in which the words of Scripture were written so that we might really hear what it is that those words are saying. How is God speaking into our lives through these ancient words that he spoke thousands of years ago to his people as well. We must ask, what is going on? What is happening in the story of Scripture that prompts God to say what he says and to do what he does to the best of our ability? That's what we want to strive to do. We want to read and we want to understand in a way that the ancient words come to life so that we we hear them anew, and they become living and powerful words of God to us. Does that sound like a good plan? A good charge? That's where we want to go. We want to, want to begin this morning with some introductory kinds of truths, sort of uh, some umbrella statements uh, that will help us start, I think, at the right place uh, with, these, with these words. First... I want to do a little bit with just biblical history. And I want you to help me with this. You will, uh, you'll be familiar with a lot of this. We need some contextual reminders of what was going on when these words were spoken by God, given by God to his people. The account that we just read together is found in the book of Exodus. It is the second book in the Old Testament. You know that. It is a historical book. Now, tell me, do you remember the key event that happened in the book of Exodus? The clue is in the name. (laughs) Exodus means getting out of here, baby! Remember what happened in Exodus? They left where? Egypt. Okay, so tell me Tell me a little bit of what you know about Egypt. Was it a godly nation? Pharaoh's slavery. Yeah, Pharaoh was definitely the boss. The Egyptians had a lot of gods. A pantheon of gods. Plethora of choices. But they didn't worship God. They didn't worship Yahweh. Now the Egyptians didn't worship Yahweh. What about the people of Israel? Did they worship Yahweh? You're not so sure about that are you? You shouldn't be. Because probably not. At least not faithfully. Tell me about the Israelites and how they got to Egypt. Do you remember? No, they got into Egypt. Started with who? Okay, Joseph, son of Jacob. Pretty soon the whole family got down there to Egypt. Time of famine, there was plenty of food. Joseph was second in command. He was able to take care of his family. And then Joseph died And then the scripture tells us that the Pharaoh who knew Joseph also died, and that's when everything went to pot. They started out as approximately 70 in Egypt, and by the time that they left Egypt, they probably numbered in excess of a million. Some estimates might go as high as 2 or 3 million people. Do you remember the story in Exodus chapter 3, Moses had a conversation with God. The bush was on fire, Moses stopped at the bush, was curious to know why this bush would be burning, but it wasn't consumed, and there he met the presence of Yahweh. And God had an assignment for Moses, you remember? He was to... Be the leader of his people and lead them out of Egypt, a land of slavery. That's important. Don't miss that theme. They were slaves in Egypt and they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And you remember in this conversation that Moses had with God, he was concerned about a few things. First of all, he was concerned that he was not a good speaker. He was not persuasive. He wouldn't be able to communicate well. And that concern revealed a greater concern, which was God wanted him to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Oh, no problem, Lord. Most powerful man in the world. Just let these people go. That's what God says. So that was a legitimate concern. And concern number three was... Do you remember what he said to God? He said, So, who will I tell them has sent me? That is so telling. Who will I tell them has sent me? He anticipated that when he went back to Egypt to connect with his people who were in slavery, to gather the leaders, and to say, God has come to rescue you after 400 years of misery he anticipated that the leaders would say god who god who so it's it's a safe bet to think that they probably didn't know yahweh at least not well so you know the story god reveals himself in a big way to the egyptians he devastates their land Devastates their livestock and the people, and finally, Pharaoh relents and lets them go until he realizes, whoa, wait, I just lost my slave labor force. And so he pursues them, and we see miracle after miracle after miracle. The Israelites knew that they were on their way to somewhere via the Egyptian wilderness. They were being led by a God that they did not know. However, they were learning that he was very powerful. That they were learning. And they were going to a place that they had never been. They maybe had never even heard of it. There was no Google in those days. Okay? And so they had no idea. So for the next few weeks, we see unfolding in the book of Exodus, God showing himself... Powerful, more powerful than the Egyptian gods. Do you remember how he led them through the wilderness? Pillars of fire, pillars of smoke. Remember how he fed them? Yeah, quail, manna. Where did they get water in that dry desert? Yeah, now there's a common place to look for water look in the rocks. And how about their shoes and their clothing? This is some God. There, it seems beginning to get a picture of, of who this God is, certainly in terms of his, his power and his ability. And then in chapter 19 of Exodus, Moses is called up to Mount Sinai by God. And he meets with him there. And the chapter gives us the first record Of the Ten Commandments, as Moses is listening to God and flows out of that conversation into chapter 20, what we call the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. There are several more chapters in Exodus that are given to laws and the building of the tabernacle, God's dwelling place with his people. Moses was on the mountain for a long time, and at the end of that time, God gave him the two tablets of the law. The Decalogue. And then chapter 32 of Exodus tells us this. When the people saw that Moses was gone for so long, they took matters into their own hands. Do you remember what they did? They made a calf out of gold. Where do you suppose that idea came from? Egypt. One of the Egyptian gods. One of the pantheon. They made a God that they could see and touch and relate to because it was familiar. Because 400 years is a long time to be in slavery. So the remainder of the book of Exodus then is about God revealing his character through laws, the setting up of the tabernacle, establishment of the sacrificial system, And then there are a couple of more historical books, Leviticus and Numbers, much more of the same, although more history woven in as well, packed with God's revelation of himself through what is often referred to as the legal code, Leviticus. Picture of God revealing himself and the people struggling to understand and live in obedience to God. Okay, obedience didn't go so well. Because they spent 40 years longer than they had to, wandering around that miserable desert. And then you fast forward to the beginning of the fifth book of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. And they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River. Are you with me? This is getting exciting. Okay? They're going to enter the land that God has promised to them. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we have a written record of the Ten Commandments. Again, the name of the book means second law, second giving of the law. It is a repeat of what has already been given to the people. Okay, so just to make sure you're awake, I want you to turn to a neighbor, and I want you to ask them, what is the significance of the ten words or the ten commandments, the Decalogue, what is the significance of it being given twice? first when they were coming out of Egypt and second when they were entering the promised land what's the significance of that go ahead okay what do you think what's the significance there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of laws in the mosaic code over 600 and yet the repeat is the decalogue. Why do you think? What's what is significant? What what does your neighbor think? Donna? Okay. 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 So reminder been forty years since the previous generation. Yes, Lee. Say more. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Can't eat seafood. No good reason for that. No. (laughs) Possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reminder. Reminder. Yes. You know it. It's it's fundamental. It really is. I want to suggest to you that I think I think these these ten commands reveal something about the nature of God, and they reveal something about the nature of the human heart. And those will be two driving questions as we push our way through this study together. That we will ask again and again, what does this reveal to us about the nature of God? What does this reveal to us about the nature of the human heart? And and it's interesting how we will see uh, examples that are woven throughout the Israelite experience in just those 40 years of, I think, why those 10 commands bookend that experience. The wilderness was the testing place. It was the refining place for the people to prepare them to launch into the promised land and new experience. So let me ask you another question. Did the Ten Commandments save anyone? You're hesitant. Why are you hesitant? Read Romans. Paul will tell you definitively, no, they did not. What's the point? What's the point? Say again? To show them their sin. To show them their sin. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment in all of the commandments? Jesus said, the song that we sang, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then, free of charge, he tacked on the next one and said, just in case you're curious, the second one is related to the first one, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I want to suggest to you that the Ten Commandments have, as Lee said, fundamental truth, fundamental principles that are important to our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. They didn't save the Israelites. Paul is clear, Romans 4, Romans 5. He makes a case all the way up to that point to say, you know, Jews and Gentiles alike are lost, but for the blood of Christ and justification in Christ, there is no salvation. But then in chapter 4, he says, so some of you might ask then, what is the advantage of being a Jew? And Paul says clearly, The advantage of being a Jew is that we have received the words of God. And the words of God give life. That's what we're about in this series. I want us, as the people of God, to explore how it is these ten words, these ten statements, bring life. Have you ever noticed that there are just ten? I could have been 12, could have been 15 or 20. Maybe only 5. But for some reason, there is the number 10. God took the truths that are fundamental to the human existence. Relationship with him and relationship with others. And it's interesting, and we'll break them down as we go, and you've probably seen this. The first four have to do with relationship to God. last six have to do with relationship with one another. Jesus summed the law up, said, love God with everything you've got, love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's it's the pattern that is revealed for us in the Ten Commandments. I think it's so significant and of great value for us to, to wrestle with some of these things together because it was God's intention all along when he started out this nation of people in Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you, the nations of the earth will have opportunity to know God. And we jump right onto that immediately and say, well, that's that's a messianic promise. And indeed it is. Through the Jews comes the Messiah Jesus. But there, I think, is more to it than that. There is much more in terms of how do these people live their lives. Time and time again, you think of Rahab. Remember in, 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 in Jericho. You know, Rahab told the spies when they were sent into the city to check it out. She said, you know, word of you and your God has us all trembling with fear. There was a purpose in the people of Israel living their lives in obedience to the law of God not because it saved them but because it demonstrated their desire to live their lives in such a way that God's magnificence was seen in the world. And, I would add, they were blessed because of their obedience. Kent Hughes says that the Ten Commandments are an invitation to To grace. An invitation to grace. They are not a source of salvation. Our source of salvation is Jesus. But when we give attention to the principles and the truths that are woven throughout those commandments in our lives and strive to live them out faithfully, we are living in a channel of grace. We are living in a place where we can know and experience intimacy with God relationship of love and grace with him that is added to, if I can say it that way, the grace that has already been given us in Jesus. Does that make sense? So, that's where we're going to go for the next few Sundays together. So I would encourage you, read both accounts. Read Exodus 20. Read Deuteronomy chapter 5. Spend time thinking through the commands. Spend time thinking about what does it reveal about the character and the nature of God, what does it reveal about the human heart? You know, why just these ten? What's so significant about them? Read them. Pray over them. Think about them. Write about them. Talk to others about them. Teach your children about them. Let's see what God does in these next couple of months together as we give attention to what I think are these, these signposts for life and invitations to grace. Grace is an awesome thing. And the most exciting thing I think about grace, or one of the most exciting things, I need to be careful about statements like that, (laughs) is when we get to hear how the grace of God has worked in someone's life. Oh my goodness. So this morning, uh, Karen is going to come and she's going to share a little bit about her story with the Lord. One of the things that uh, we started in this last year, you were if you were present, you heard Matt share on one Sunday and Lee shared on one Sunday. My hope is is that throughout this year, we will ask another person each month to uh, come and share God's grace. Karen, thank you.
1: Well, I didn't grow up in the church or in a Christian home or family. But I did grow up um, somehow feeling that I was, had a sense of God's involvement in the world and in my life. And incredibly enough, I used to pray every night. And before going to college, I prayed that God would give me the roommate he wanted me to have. Well, I received a second year art student from Chicago who was talented, cute, popular. And I was shy, dorky, and not so talented freshman from Arvada, totally out of my element. Seriously, God? Oh, I forgot, she was a Christian. And the person across the hall who was the resident assistant was also a Christian who led a Bible study on John that first quarter. I had never really read the Bible, let alone studied it, and during that time, I really came to an understanding of Jesus as my Savior. Um, Peggy, that roommate, also got me involved in a Young Life Fellowship college group there, and my junior year, we attended a weekend camp at Silver Cliff. And on a snowy night next to the Chalk Cliffs, I knelt and committed to Jesus as Lord of my life, as well as Savior. The couple that was um, the leadership of the Fellowship of Young Life people asked six of us students to become a part of a community household during my senior year My parents, who were not believers and who were paying for my education, flipped out. They thought for sure I was joining a cult. It was the 70s, and cults were very popular at that time. Those leaders said that it was more important that I honor God by obeying my parents, or obeying God by honoring my parents and not going against their wishes, than to live in that house. So I wrote my mom and dad and said, You're right, I won't go against what you believe is not right for me. They called me. um, That was when we used to use the phone and letters and stuff. (laughs) And they called me a couple. (laughs) It was (laughs) back near Exodus, but not quite. (laughs) My parents called me back and said, we trust you. And I moved into that house and lived there for two years. Was discipled and learned to live in community. At the end of that time, the EBs sold that house, and I traveled with them to Labrie in Switzerland for three months to learn about community because they wanted to start a fellowship and a study center in Evergreen. Funny enough how God puts threads together and weaves our lives because both the Morrises and the Baldacci's were in later years part of that fellowship in Evergreen. Growing up, I always wanted to be a wife and a mom. That's what everyone that I knew was, and everyone that I knew was becoming two years after college. But I'm out of college with this art education degree and get the opportunity to go to South America to teach in an international school, so I went. It was a great adventure and um, a fun time for two years. But my relationship with God wasn't all that great. It was still intact, but not exactly vibrant. When I returned home, I was living with my mom and dad and working at a bookstore. And my big education degree, yeah. Um, I met a guy who I began dating, and it became a fairly serious relationship. And he was wanting it to move toward marriage. But he really wasn't following Jesus And my health suffered as a result of that. I was wrestling with God and wrestling with the relationship. And the doctor I saw, I was moving toward colitis, and the doctor I saw recommended to me that maybe I should um, see this couple he knew. She had been in a relationship very similar, kind of living outside of God's will. And um, he ended that relationship, met a man who was a Christian, and married this great Christian guy. And they lived nearby in Evergreen. Oh yeah, it was the EBs that I had lived with in Fort Collins that he recommended. But I hadn't really shared with them about that relationship, not in depth. So I went to them for counsel. They tried to invite this gentleman to come and have dinner with him and be a part of that, but he was not interested. So they suggested that I end that relationship, get back on track with God, and get involved in a church. They recommended a church in um, South Denver and um, they told me the name of the women's ministry leader there and I met with her. She helped me get plugged in and she assured me that obedience would bring blessing. And I just remembered this morning during that time Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 were really important to me as I back in relationship with God and really thought the joy of my salvation. Well, I got involved in that church and I kept watching and waiting because of course the blessing would be a great Christian guy to marry. That did not happen. What did happen was new growth and a depth in my walk with God and the formation of new deep friendships that are dear to me to this day and a confirmation of God's watch, care, and faithfulness in my life. About five years later, I realized that this was the greatest of blessings. Just so you know, I did struggle with my singleness and wondered what was wrong with me and grieved not having children. But God slowly showed me and brought me to a place of knowing that I was his and that was enough, and I could live a life in him and for him as a single woman. Thirty years later or so... I'm here to stand before you and testify to God's goodness and faithfulness. He has met my needs again and again. I have seen places and met people through opportunities and open doors provided by a loving Father. Though I've never married, I have been privileged to be the part of lives of many dear friends and their children in various places that I've lived. I've experienced the sweetness of fellowship and involvement with God's people in churches from Alaska to Mexico. And as I look forward to the last fifth of my life, or sixth of these next years, I think of the verse in 2 Timothy 1.12, and a hymn that's based on that, that some of you will know, and I won't sing it, because grace prevails. (laughs) This is the hymn. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy, Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word brought peace within my heart. I know not how the spirit moves convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through his word, creating faith in him. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me, of weary ways or golden days, before his face I see. I know not when my Lord may come, at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Thank you, God.